Good morning, Maplecrest. Good morning. morning. Today we have a good topic. Today we are talking about how to have good sex. And uh, we are excited about this topic. I've been teasing everybody a little bit about this as we've gone through our intimacy series. And so this is the ending of it. (laughs) Could have chosen another word, but I won't. And... uh, uh, it's a good day for jokes. It just it's going to be easy. Uh, it's going to be really easy. Last week we talked about pleasure, uh, and I'm, I'm sure everybody who listened to that had a good week. And uh, <laughs> I have many couples coming. I'm a psychologist. I have many couples coming in for counseling about their sex life, and it can be challenging. And uh, in lots of different ways for people in their sex life. You know, you come in, there's a few main challenges that people have, but it's always unique uh, in people's stories. They, uh, they have unique backgrounds, and, and I'm going to be talking today a little bit more topically. We will talk about the Bible and spirituality, because that's what we do here, but uh, it is a little bit more of a topical sermon. And, and so, if you're new, uh, or if you're listening to this online, you, you know, uh, it, it is good to kind of uh, listen to or come to a number of services to get an idea of what it's like here because it, it does vary and we kind of talk about different things. But we do like to talk about things that are um, maybe things that maybe uh, some churches don't like to talk about. We like to talk about them here. Uh, we want to be helpful and uh, we want to give a spiritual, uh, you know, Christ perspective on lots of things uh, because it, we want to be helpful in, um, in helping you to have a pleasurable life. Uh, and a good life, and a life that follows Christ in every way, including sex. And uh, so to start, I want to talk about um, how even though humans have trouble in their sex life, there are others, and it's always helpful to kind of do some, what we call in psychology, downward comparison in order to make yourself feel better. So there are others who have worse sex lives than us, and so in order to be grateful uh, for what we do have, I don't know where all of you guys are coming from, but uh, I'm pretty sure that there are others who have it worse. So I'm going to start with the Australian redback spider. Uh, describe their sex life. Um, now you might have heard of the black widow. I didn't. I, I didn't re- actually look it up. I think the black widow will eat their young, right? Um, well, you may not have heard of the Australian redback spider, similar to a black widow, uh, but instead of eating their young uh, at the, the beginning of their sexual encounter. The male will do some kind of backflip, land right bet- below the female's fangs, and while they are copulating, she devours him uh, through the whole thing. So this is this is their experience, and uh, it's pretty intense. So if you think you've got it bad, just remember the Australian redback spider. It might make you feel just a little bit better. Uh, the next one is the hippo. Uh, the hippo also has an interesting experience in their mating dance. Um, in order to a male, in order to let the female know that he's vigorous and ready and has all the necessary hormones for uh, for having sex, he flings his poop at the female. <laughs> Some of these stories were just very attractive to me. I don't know why. They were just kind of like, (laughs) it just made me feel better. I don't know why. But anyway, so he flings his poop at the female to let her know, I'm ready. It's time. But this is the the best one. The next one's really 
the crowning one. You know, if it wasn't scientific, I probably wouldn't bring it up because it just feels wrong to bring up in a church. But these are scientific facts, people. This is, uh, you know, this is what you would see on like a National Geographic movie or something like that. So I'm not being inappropriate at all. Uh, I'm just kind of teaching a lesson. Uh, so the next one here is about the flatworm. So we could do the flatworm picture. Yes. Okay. So here are the flatworms. Now, her, her flatworms are hermaphrodites, which means that they have both female and male uh, genitalia. All of them have have both sets. Um, and in order, when they're copulating, they have a battle. And now, the technical term—I'm only going to use technical terms because I don't want to be inappropriate. The battle that the flatworm has as they're copulating is technically called penis fencing. <laughs> <laughs> So they fence, they fight with their penises <laughs> in order to decide who is going to have to carry the baby. <laughs> so the goal of the penis fencing, uh, well, you can guess what the goal is. And, uh, and in this case, the one who doesn't win the fencing match is impregnated and, uh, and the other one can carry on. Oh my goodness. <laughs> this is just, this is National Geographic. I know not, some of you may not read National Geographic or watch the shows, but if you did, they might have an episode about the flatworm. And uh, <laughs> so you could have it worse. You could have it worse. And maybe the first step in having good sex is to realize that other people or other animals and species uh, have it worse than you. And to be thankful for what you do have. There's one story, that, I mean, the theme of today is going to be balancing, is balance. And uh, the two things that I'm going to be talking about balancing are the emotional side and the physical side of sex. And, oh, I just can't stop kind of giggling. <laughs> uh, anyway, so there's a story, that, there's kind of a common pattern that comes into the clinic. It's not, I wouldn't maybe call it common, actually, but it, it does come up and it's a pattern. And uh, it's men who come in, and uh, because of the, pa uh, the, the choices that they've made in, their, in uh, how they have sex, they basically only will have sex with people when it's almost entirely physical. Almost is an important word there. But it's almost entirely physical. And then what happens, they're, they're not distressed by this. Well, they might be at some level, but... Uh, what, when, the, when they actually think they need to come for therapy isn't when they're in that pattern as much, but it's when they actually meet a woman that they are emotionally uh, attracted to. And what can sometimes happen when they've had a past of being on the more physical side is now when they're actually on the more emotional side, when they're actually attracted and actually know the woman and they are maybe interested in the woman and all of a sudden they can't perform in bed. It's funny, I... Uh, there was a chapter of a book on masculinity that I read one time, and it had a chapter called The Wisdom of the Penis. And uh, it's a book to buy just for that chapter title alone. And uh, anyway, so, I mean, we talked about, in that book it was talking about how uh, some men who were going and having relationships with people wouldn't be able to perform when they were having an affair. And I've actually found that to be a little bit of a pattern in my practice as well. Men will come in and they'll talk about having the intention of having an affair but not being able to perform at the time. So is this kind of sometimes a wisdom of the penis? And in this case, um, it, it's harder for the man than to actually have sex when, uh, when they're more emotionally vulnerable. 
and it's become something to overcome. They've kind of trained themselves to only focus on the physical side, and it becomes intense uh, on the other side. So their penis is basically telling them that something's wrong with the way that they're going forward and that they need to fix it. There is hope for, for people in that situation. Um, but what I think it illustrates when, when I have these people coming in, particularly men coming in with that, it, it illustrates how there are kind of two sides uh, to the sexual coin. Uh, there's the physical side and then there's the emotional side. Now, a lot of people will think that they are completely separate. Like you can actually do one without the other entirely. And I don't believe that's true. I believe that they're always overlapping uh, on some level. Uh, but you can be more dominantly interested or oriented towards either the physical or the emotional side. And if you were going to kind of go down the stereotype gender lines, you could say that men are generally a little bit more physically oriented and women are a little bit more emotionally oriented. Although I'm well aware that that's not always the case. And people who, who focus too much on one or too much on the other, either one, can often run into trouble, particularly if they are married. So for men, some people, um, or many people I'd actually say, and men included, will actually feel like there is no emotional content in their sexual experience. Like they are uh, basically like a machine and uh, that they just need to be able to have the orgasm. It doesn't really matter where they get it. And it's kind of like a plumbing thing, you know, like it just kind of, the, the tension builds in the boiler and then it's released and that's all there is to it. And if people think about it logically, maybe they wouldn't uh, kind of come to that conclusion, but you know, in that, if you just ask people, even when you talk to people, they don't stop themselves from saying that. They'll actually say things along those lines of, you know what, I don't really, I'm not really interested in the emotional side, it's just being able to have that orgasm. And women will feel it too, they'll feel it in themselves when uh, they're in those kinds of relationships. And for sure, um, there can be people who are more focused on uh, that physical release. But there's lots of evidence, when you think about it, to the contrary, that men are actually interested in the emotional side. For example, why are men with women at all, if it was all just plumbing? If it was really just about a physical release, relationships are an awful lot of trouble sometimes just to get a physical release. There's a lot of money and time and investment, and if you're not actually interested in any of the emotional things that you're going to get back, why? Would you go to all of that trouble if you're not interested in emotional feedback from somebody else, if you're not actually interested in a relationship? Why do men kiss if it's all just about plumbing? We had a uh, talk before on pornography. It's very powerful. Pornography is very powerful. And some men are actually moving so far towards the physical that they actually are going into this place where they are not as interested in relationships. But still, by and large, men are interested in relationships it's not, just, it's not just plumbing. One thing I've actually noticed in my practice is that, because we're dealing with sex drives, is that men are actually more interested in the orgasm when they aren't around their partner, when they are alone. When men are left kind of alone on a trip, they'll have more often, more orgasms in order to cope with that, uh, unless there's maybe some understanding that they won't. Uh, it, it seems that actually being able to cuddle with their partner, even though it can be confusing because oftentimes cuddling will lead to sex, if they, are not, if, they know they're not really, if they know they're not going there and that's not what's happening tonight, the cuddling will actually help them to not feel that, uh, that building tension inside as much. It'll help them get 
uh, to the next time that they are able to have an orgasm. So there is like an emotional connection that seems to be connected to the sex drive. It seems to be related for a lot of men. In other words, you can satisfy a little bit of that tension with just the emotional side. Basically, both men and women have a need for physical closeness that goes beyond the orgasm. So how do you satisfy this? Now, I came to you with the story of the hippo and the spider and, and the flatworm, which maybe none of you will remember anything else I've said now uh, because of those stories. But uh, there was a story of an animal that Natasha saw, actually by accident, she was watching an actual animal documentary yesterday. And it seemed to be about mating. And uh, she was talking, she was watching about birds of paradise. And there was this bird of paradise that even without knowing my, my jokes uh, about kind of these other animals, she was like, Cyrus, you have to watch this. And it's this bird who will, she was very excited about this bird. This, this bird will actually go on the ground and clean. Right away, I knew why she was excited. Anyway, so this bird will clean a fairly significant area on the ground, like taking away all the leaves. And if you drop a leaf, the bird gets very agitated and will immediately go and throw away that leaf. And he has his space all set up. And then he prepares himself. And then the female comes stand, and sits on a branch above the bird. And the first thing that the male bird will do when the female comes and is his audience is he will bow. He bows to her. Yes, I know. <laughs> this is quite different from the hippo. <laughs> I was wanting to tell the hippo story. She was wanting to talk about the bow and the cleaning. And then, the part that was disturbing to me the most was the, the male started to dance. What was disturbing about it was Natasha liked that part too. <laughs> and he would do this very elaborate dance. And of course, on the, on the movie, they were putting it to like the cha-cha, right? And he's like going to the left, and he's going to the right, and doing the circles. And kind of looked at her and said, I don't think so, honey. <laughs> Anyway, that's the other side, right? That's the other side. That was the one that she wanted. Where was I here? Uh, oh, the dance, yes. There was really no animal when I was looking around that had the kind of... Now, there were lots of... And as you could tell from the bird, there were lots of very intricate mating kind of uh, courting rituals. But if you look at the complexity of the sexual experience for a human being. And you could watch a documentary, I remember watching this at one point, on just all of the physical things that happen to people when they're going through a sexual experience. These connection points and all the things that happen to the different parts of our body, many parts of our body, the uh, emotional experiences, the physical experiences, the physical connection, how unnecessary all of this really is when you look at how other animals copulate, you realize how unnecessary it is. There's so many things that happen in the human sexual experience that don't happen in the vast majority, and I would argue at the complexity and level of a human, don't happen in any other species. I think it's meaningful. 
The ability of humans to enjoy each other and create pleasure is amazing. And, as we've talked about in previous talks in this series, can become unhealthy. I've already talked about the unhealthy ways this can happen. So I won't make that a major thing, but today I want to focus on foreplay. What a sermon topic. <laughs> it's intense, and it's, and it's complicated. And it's biblical. If there was any passage of scripture that I almost feel uncomfortable reading in church, it would be some sections of the Song of Solomon. But it's actually described, not literally, but almost. Thinly veiled would be the word I would use. And I'll read it to you, because this is church and we're allowed to read the Bible. Song of Solomon 7, verse 7. There's quite a bit in the Song of Solomon, but I'll just pick a part here. I remember I was, I don't know how old I was, able to read, I guess. I don't know. I, and I came downstairs and I said, Mom, I read my first whole book of the Bible. And she said, which one? I said, Song of Solomon. <laughs> I said, figures. <laughs> uh, I didn't even understand why that was figures to her. I didn't understand. <laughs> I was that young. Anyway, uh, verse 7. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I say, I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine and the scent of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. It goes down smoothly for my beloved, gliding over lips and teeth. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. It goes on. But I think that's probably enough. The thinly veiled foreplay that's described in the Song of Solomon. God is in favor of foreplay. He created it. He created foreplay. Just think about that. He didn't have to. That's very clear from the animal kingdom. He didn't have to create foreplay. There were other ways. So, step one in having better sex, we have to make foreplay happen. Some couples stop having foreplay. They stop it. I, I find it amazing, but it actually happens quite commonly. One of the most, if I was going to think of like a one-stop treatment for most sexual disorders, it would be what's called sensate therapy. It's not sensate therapy, sensate therapy, like sensory, sensate, S-E-N-T-A-T-E, -E, sensate therapy. I think I said that wrong, S-A-N-S-A-T-E, sensate therapy. Yes. And in this therapy, it's not all that complicated, you're not allowed to have sex. Step one for having a better sex life. The irony. You're not allowed. Stop it. And you have to slowly take steps towards having sex again. Now, there's many different ways or formulas, but the basic idea is that you're not allowed to have sex, and you kind of almost replicate the, what would, might happen in, well, or at least what used to happen in many dating experiences, where it would go slowly over time. 
And it would start maybe with having your clothes on and kissing, and that would be it. And it would progressively move on to, you know, well, I'll let you use your imagination, but, you know, you can imagine all the different steps that you could have. And if you want to look it up, you can look it up online, and there's different kind of schedules and plans for this that you can, you can decide about. And some each step, so let's say your clothes on kissing might be a day, it might be three days, it might even be a week, and you might go slower, you might go faster. But basically what it's prescribing is a focus on foreplay. That's it. You're not allowed to actually have the orgasm. Sex is more than an orgasm. I've actually tried in the past to redefine sex as not just being having an orgasm with couples, and it almost never works, so I've stopped. So I just go with foreplay. But I include it, and I try to expand the idea of sex beyond just being what people might think of as sex. Because what you see on the movies with the simultaneous mutual orgasm is not most couples' experience. And that can be hard for many couples who have watched a lot of movies and feel like it needs to be a certain way. And if you're focusing on orgasm, if you're focusing on mutual climax and all of these things in the way it's supposed to be, you can often devalue what you have. And if you're one of those couples who can have that experience on a regular basis, the news for you is that it likely won't last. I'm not trying to curse anybody. I hope it does. I hope you have everything that you've ever wanted and seen in the movies. But the reality is that as you get older, physically things changed. Sexual desires change and uh, performance changes, particularly for men sometimes. And so even if right now you're like, Cyrus, I don't need to focus on foreplay. We're doing fine. That's great. But this might be a talk that you need to pull up later at a different point in life. And maybe you need to prepare yourself for expanding your view of what sex is. That sex is more than just a certain kind of orgasm. And sensate therapy is a way of helping you to focus on that. And to go into bed with your partner and realize that if you don't have that certain experience, it doesn't mean that you have to be ashamed. It doesn't mean that you failed. And oftentimes that's what I find. People will be ashamed and feel like they've failed or they'll ridicule each other. And then they don't want to have sex anymore. Performance issues or not being able to have an erection is actually one of those topics. There's a couple that people actually still have trouble talking about with, in a confidential setting with a therapist. That's how much shame can surround performance issues. I've had men who won't even go to the doctor to try the pills that are available for this disorder because they're too ashamed to, to actually get help. And they resign themselves to a life of not being able to have an erection rather than actually talk about it. How do I know? Because their wives come in. <laughs> and they tell me. Now, if you're on the other side, you may have trouble focusing too much on the emotional and feel like the physical side is dirty and unnecessary and wrong or sex drive is somehow taking away from the experience. And sensate therapy on that side will also help somebody focus on the physical side because what are you doing for all of these weeks? You're regularly engaging 
in physical pleasure with your partner? What feels good other than the orgasm? So, sensate therapy helps the person who has the really strong sex drive to realize that there's more than just the orgasm. To focus on the other sides of sex, to focus on the pleasure, and to focus on the physical, and to not feel so much like if they're not able to perform or have an orgasm, there's more to it than that. You can experience all these other things, and those are actually success. You can just enjoy each other. And if you're on the side where the physical is dirty or wrong and it's all just about emotional, sensei therapy helps people to focus on the physical and how your body can actually enjoy the experience. Even if, as for many are, can't experience an orgasm at all. There actually still is a benefit and pleasure that you can have in all these other things, in foreplay. Okay, so sensei therapy is usually my first thing that I'm thinking about when any couple comes in. Is like, is this something that they can engage in? The next step, like I said, we're trying to balance. We're trying to balance the emotional, we're trying to balance the physical. And sensate therapy usually brings them together. The next step is to understand each other. There's so much miscommunication and pain. And that's one of the reasons is because sexual rejection is like the worst kind of rejection. I remember hearing about a therapist who was very popular and famed, going around and he was accomplished and older and he would tell a story and he would say, I'm this person who goes out and speaks. People try to hear me and I have all of these things in my life where I'm successful and yet when my wife says no to me, I come to myself and I realize I'm in the corner, curled up in a ball, crying. How could somebody like me with all of these accomplishments and maturity be so devastated by sexual rejection? Even in the safety of a long-term committed relationship. So, we try to understand this problem in communication. Usually the problem in communication comes around this balancing of the physical and the emotional. Feeling like your partner's need for sex, the sex drive, maybe makes you feel like they just want you for your body and they don't actually love you as a person. So the person with less of a sex drive is often judging the person with the sex drive. And the person with the sex drive is often judging the person without the sex drive. Saying something's wrong with your body or you're not attracted to me. You're not doing this right. Why aren't you doing this the way I do it? Why don't you have a need for sex? You're not excited about it. You're not thinking about it all day. When I mention it to you, you're like, oh right, sex. What is that? Why don't you want sex the same way that I do? Maybe you're not attracted to me. Maybe something's wrong with you. Do you need to go to the doctor? So both people are judging each other. And they often battle, and this is how the battle goes, usually. I'll just make it stereotyped around the gender lines, but it can happen the other way too. So the man comes to the woman and says, I want to have sex. Usually it's not quite that upfront, but there can be different signals, basically making the move. And the woman says, no. Oh, what are you talking about? Sex? Oh, right. We have sex sometimes. That's, no, no, not tonight. I have plans. I, have, I haven't thought about it. No, I don't want sex. He's hurt. She doesn't want to have sex. She wasn't thinking about it. Oh my goodness. 
she never wants it the way that I want it. So maybe he pouts a little bit, looks sad, tries to hide it, maybe. And then she comes up to him maybe half an hour later and says, okay, we can have sex. And then he's like, well, I know you don't really want to. So we're not going to have sex now. You're just doing it because I'm sad. That's not fun. I want you to want to have sex. So then he's like, fine, we won't have sex. The next part's a little bit kind of gray, but eventually they kind of, oh, okay, we'll have sex. Somehow that happens. Sometimes it takes longer, sometimes not, but then they have sex. And then... They kind of feel better, or at least he does, because now he doesn't have that tension anymore. But they also both feel somewhat dissatisfied. Like, you really didn't want to. And it's like, yes, I did want to have sex. No, you didn't. Why? Why? That wasn't as fun as it should be. Why is it like this for us? And she commits herself often at that point to be more careful, to not lead him on. And so she becomes less forward with any kind of um, affection or any sign that she might be interested in sex because she doesn't want to cause him this kind of pain. So they stop cuddling as much. So, sometimes, what I talk about with people in this situation is I actually say, I don't want you to talk so much about sex. It's so painful. I want you to communicate less about this. For some couples, I obviously want them to communicate more, but in general, I want you to communicate and come up with a plan so that you have less sexual rejection in your relationship. So I'll actually suggest scheduling sex, to which most couples will be like, oh my goodness, scheduling sex, that's the worst idea ever. I remember one couple came to me and said, we're not going to schedule sex. And then they said, we'll tell you why. There was this one time we were at work and we were texting each other and they were like, okay, let's have sex tonight. And then that night... We were getting ready for it. We had the best sex ever. And I looked at them and I said, you realize that when you texted each other in the afternoon, you actually scheduled sex. That wasn't spontaneous. And I say, you don't have to use the word schedule. You can call it date night or whatever you want. (laughs) But I find that scheduling sex actually helps to balance it for both people. I say, the person who has the higher sex drive, it's easier to get through Thursday if you know that Friday is the night. It actually helps to know it's coming. You don't have to always be... Oh, I was going to say fencing. You don't always have to be... (laughs) uh, seeing where your opportunity is and trying to capitalize on it. You don't have to worry about it as much. And then for the person with the lower sex drive, I'll say, you're not actually scheduling sex. For most couples, they'll actually be scheduling non-sex nights more than they'll be scheduling sex nights. You're scheduling non-sex nights. That's what you're actually scheduling. Nights when you don't have to worry about it. And you know what? On those days when you're not having sex, you can cuddle without worrying. You can be affectionate and not think that you're going to give him the wrong idea. It actually brings back affection into the relationship. It doesn't work for everybody. But it's a way of balancing and bringing back affection into the relationship. Yeah. 
sometimes for people with higher sex drives, it's hard for them to understand how somebody with less of a sex drive can actually appreciate sex. And I often tell them the story. I'll tell them a story of me and massages. So I've had maybe about two massages in my lifetime, maybe three. One of them, the last one, was quite painful. And me, with my masculinity, didn't want to admit it, so I let it continue. Because my masseuse, or I don't think you, I don't know, massage therapist was a woman, and I, oh, I just couldn't admit that she was hurting me. <laughs> anyway, so it wasn't pleasant. But, um, but you know, they were, most of them were good. Like the other two, I think, were great massages. That was great. And if you told me, or if I just knew somehow that I wasn't going to have a massage again for the rest of my life, I might actually be okay with that. I mean, I have a little bit of like, I want to have a massage if I want to have a massage. But, you know, really, like I could, if I didn't really know that somebody was telling me I wasn't, but if I just knew that I wasn't and I wasn't ever going to want, ever have that opportunity, I'd actually be okay with it. I have no massage drive. There's no tension building inside of me waiting for my next massage. I would be okay. They're enjoyable if they happen, but I don't have to have one. But if my wife had a massage drive, if she had a drive to give massages, I could probably have more. If she maybe wanted to have, I don't know, three massages a week, just throwing out a number, I could probably figure out a way to make that work and actually enjoy it. Now, she would have to do some work, though. We'd have to, like, schedule it so that I know it's coming, because i got stuff to do. I'm a busy guy, you know, and I've got things to do, and I don't want to come home and get the surprise massage, you know. It's like, honey, I was not ready for this. I'm not ready for a massage right now. I had other things I was going to do tonight. But, you know, if she all of a sudden made it nice, you know, put out the table and had something for me to eat while I was having the massage, and I was like, hey, this is actually kind of nice. I'm going to get a massage tonight. And I knew in advance, and I planned around it and scheduled and I could get myself in the mood, you know, like Tuesday, Friday, Sunday. Those are massage days. I could actually, I, I'm getting kind of excited right now thinking about it. I like the idea. Uh, where's Natasha? She went up to work with the kids. But anyway, like, uh, this is something that I think could actually happen. And I would, I would be happy about it. But if she came to me on the airplane and said, hey, let's sneak into the bathroom and have a massage. It would be like, come on, honey. <laughs> what are you talking about? I got no massage drive. Like this, let's wait till we get home, you know, and tell me when it's going to happen. But the truth of it is, when I'm having the massage, even though it's scheduled, even though she did stuff to get me ready for it and made it all nice, I actually do enjoy it. It isn't something that's a burden in my life, even though I have no massage drive. I actually would like it. I would feel taken care of. I would feel connected. It would actually feel good during the massage. It would be time for us. I would actually like to have more massages. While still being able to say with complete honesty that if I never had another massage for the rest of my life, I probably would be okay too. But for some people with high massage drives, that would be hard to understand. How can you say you could go the rest of your life without another massage and actually be okay with having a massage three times a week? But I can have both. I could survive both, and I would actually enjoy it if I had more. But if I didn't, I would also have more time to do other things. So, you know, whatever. But it would actually be enjoyable and be good for us as a, for our relationship. So to have a good sex drive, first step is to realize that some have it worse. We need to be thankful for what we have. 
We need to balance the physical and the emotional and not judge each other, whether you're on more on one side or more on the other. We need to realize that all of us have both, a need for the emotional and for the physical. You can't have one without the other. We all have both, but we do often kind of center a little bit more. And just because you center more on the physical doesn't mean that it's all about the physical, even if you think it is. It's not. And if you focus more on the emotional, that doesn't mean you don't have a body that can enjoy things you do. And it helps you emotionally to connect. And sometimes it's helpful not only to understand each other, but it's helpful to communicate better about our sexual patterns and find ways that we can experience what we can experience without a lot of sexual rejection. Now, God uses marriage and courting as metaphors in the Bible to describe his relationship with us. He doesn't shy away from sex. And in our last talk, we talked about enjoyment and how God wants to enjoy us. But I want to make it clear that God is not in the business of having sex with people. And even with Mary, he didn't have sex with Mary to have Jesus. He came upon her and it was miraculous. But it wasn't kind of in the way that you would think of sex. It's not, it doesn't have those elements. But I do think that we can understand from, the, from what God created in foreplay and the way that he talks about foreplay in the Bible that he is a God of pleasure. And he did create time to be close and to enjoy. And even to be physically connected with his people. Some of the most powerful spiritual moments that people describe to me and that I've had were actually physical encounters with God and his spirit. And those physical encounters and maybe manifestations or experiences inside of God's love flowing down on me or just his presence in my body are powerful for building faith and for emotional healing. Sex is not just about having a baby. And our spiritual walk is not just about getting into heaven. God makes it clear that he is interested in enjoying us along the way. He's interested in pleasure. He's interested not just in the destination, but he's interested in the journey. Saying a prayer is not just about getting out of hell and then ignoring Jesus and his design. He wants friendship. He wants communication. It may feel unnecessary. But he wants our hearts. He wants our hearts. Let's pray. Lord, you're such a good God. Thank you for wanting our hearts. Please help us to learn from our create from the creation that you have about how you function. And how this isn't just about getting from A to B, but it's actually about a relationship along the way. But how you're a good God, who even when we're going through hard times, wants us to enjoy, wants us to enjoy you. And please help us to know that this isn't a gendered thing, that you interact with both men and women in creating ways that we can enjoy your friendship, enjoy your leadership, enjoy your voice in our lives. And Lord, I pray that you would reinvigorate our prayer lives to enjoy you 
that you would give us pleasure when we're communicating with you, that we would enjoy talking with you, and that we would spend time with you not just to get something, that we would spend time with you because you're our friend and because we love you. Amen.